0: There is a word in your New Testament that's used rather frequently. It's the Greek word zelos, and uh, it's where we get the word zeal or zealous from. If you would ask Siri or Alexa, hey, Siri, what does zeal mean? I actually, she's going to tell me now, right now. It means great energy, enthusiasm, and pursuit of a cause or an objective. Thank you, Siri. I did not want you right now. Uh, It means great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. What Siri or Alexa will not bother to tell you is that zeal can be both good or bad. For example, zeal for your spouse, good. Zeal for someone you are stalking, bad. Zeal can uh, mean great energy and enthusiasm. That can be good if you're talking about your favorite sports team. It's very bad if you're talking about that poor kid who kept getting death threats because he caught the Cubs fan, the the ball in game six. Very bad energy and enthusiasm trying to kill that poor young man. Uh, Zeal for discovering the best queso in the Wichita Metro. Very good becoming obese or bankrupt in the process of that great cause, that could be bad. To that point, we're going to look at a couple instances in your Bible, a portion of your New Testament titled Matthew. We're going to look at some cases where zeal goes awry. It's a message I'm calling religion gone rancid because God very much calls us to be zealous for his name. You can check out Romans 12, 11, Revelation 3, 19, Titus 2, 14, for example. However, God also says zeal gone bad is wicked. Uh, Romans 10.2 would be an example of that. Or you can just refer to the life of Saul, who in the book of Acts set out to destroy and kill Christians who weren't living that Jewish life in the name of his God, his zeal. So if you have your Bible, you can meet me in Mark chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, there should be a table of contents at the front that will give you a page number Uh, My Bible, I'm on page 1225. Anybody else on that? No? Okay, that's all right. we will help you. Uh, I had to buy the uh, Bible with the large print, because apparently getting old is like zeal, and it can be good and bad, and it's very bad in this case, because it's so huge. But before we get to the text, uh, there's a little bit of background that we need to establish, because when the author wrote this, he assumed everybody reading it knew some things that people today very likely do not know. To be specific, the author assumed that everyone would be familiar with the fourth commandment. Now, I know all of you and those of you watching online at home churches, all of you have the Ten Commandments memorized in order, so you know exactly what the Fourth Commandment is. But there are some people tuning in on the Facebook, and they might have grown up in California, you know, so they, they're not familiar with the commandment. They know Charlton Heston, and, which is fine. But uh, So to catch them up... Um, Let me just remind all of them what the fourth commandment is, which is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Moses clarifies this. That's Exodus 28. He clarifies it in verse 9. He says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor male or female servant, nor animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, but he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, this automatically causes some problems for us in English, because when we think of holy, we think of quiet. Holy is boring. Holy is do not have any fun. How dare you smile on the Sabbath? The masks are a good thing because we can't tell if anybody is smiling or laughing in church because this is a holy place, right? But that's not what God means when he uses the word holy. In Hebrew, the word kidosh literally means separate, means unique. In other words, we're supposed to keep the Sabbath day distinct, It is a different kind of day. Why? Because it belongs to God. When something is holy unto the Lord, it is recognizably His. Which the reason God instituted this command to keep the Sabbath day holy was meant to be a gift. This was an agrarian world. Not just the Israelites, like literally everybody at that time and all the surrounding communities had to be self-sufficient or they had to have slaves that would help them be sufficient and provide for their needs. But either way, it was a culture of extreme labor. There's no grub hub. There are no grocery stores. There is no Amazon drone to deliver everything you need in two days or less. Uh, If you don't grow the wheat and harvest the wheat and mill the grain and bake the bread. You see, you're not going to eat. Y'all thought getting toilet paper was hard today. (laughs) Back then, a little rougher. So when God says to the Israelite people, I'm going to give you this specific area of land, and he says, in return for this land, I want you to be my people, and I want you to be holy. I want you to be distinguished. I want you to be set apart from the other people in the land. When he says, one of the ways that I want you to be holy is by every seventh day, you're going to take a day off. He does not say that because he's cruel. He says that because he's kind. I'm sure the people then did what we do now, and they're like, wait, hold on, God. Why would we do that? What about during planting season? God says, take the day off. What about harvest season? God, we don't harvest it. We can't eat it. What do we, God says, take the day off. And they're like, well, this does not sound like a good plan, God. God says, I promise you, God, my promise to you, the people, if you'll take the day off, you'll harvest just as much as those people who work themselves to death. God says, this is my gift to you called a Sabbath. Now in the years to follow, instead of the Sabbath being a gift, the Sabbath became a burden. Instead of being a day off of work, it became a day you couldn't do anything but focus on God. Maybe that's how you grew up on the Sabbath. You can't do anything but focus on God. And you know from experience that when you focus on God and it is forced, it is futile. Because anything that is forced, that you're forced to do, it's almost always done half-heartedly. It's the reason you have to make sure your kids actually brush their teeth. Because when you force them to do it, this why you have to make sure they actually clean their room. Didn't just shove everything under the bed or in the closet. It's why you have to, because when you force somebody to do something, see, which just for the record, this idea of rules being a gift does not just apply to the fourth commandment. I'd like to point out that all the commands of God are always a gift. The commands and rules are never meant to be burdensome. And you've heard me say this before. I feel like I say it every single week. God's not trying to keep anything from you. His regulations, His rules, His commands were meant to bring blessing, not reduction. So when God says, don't worship any other gods, it's not because He doesn't want you to find another God who is nicer. It is because there are no other gods. When he says, don't use my name in vain, which we think that means don't cuss, but that's not what that means. It means don't take an oath using my name. Don't take on a promise using God's name. That's what that means. Uh, Because he he says that not, not for his benefit, for yours. Because what if you take an oath in God's name and then you don't fulfill the oath? Is God supposed to kill you? Because you didn't live up to your end of the bargain. You swore on his name. And when God says, honor your father and mother and don't try and sleep with somebody else's spouse and don't steal stuff. And don't you want to live in a world like that? Like, wouldn't you want to live in a neighborhood where people aren't trying to kill you and they don't want all of your stuff because they, can't have your st- uh, they don't have the same stuff? And it's almost like these ancient commands and outdated rules still apply today. It's almost like if we could get some of these things right, our world would look different. But jot this down, then we'll be in Mark. God's commands are a gift, gift, not a burden. God's commands are a gift, not a burden. God doesn't give you rules to see if you are spiritually committed enough. He's not some kind of SAT, spiritual aptitude test administrator up there in heaven going to strike you down if you don't do a very good job. The problem is, as we're about to see is when people turn God's gifts into an obligation and they become a burden. So let's go. Mark chapter 2. Let's pick it up in verse 23. One Sabbath day the day of rest, the day off of work. As Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Pause. Now here's what you should have gathered based on my incredibly thorough introduction. It was not unlawful According to God, for the disciples to break the heads off of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the grain. It was unlawful because the Pharisees made extra rules and man-made religious traditions that prohibited that sort of a thing. It was not according to the law of God handed down through Moses wrong. The Bible says, "Keep the Sabbath day holy." It says, "Don't work. God worked 6 days and rested." But people, being people, they come along and say, well, we better define what work is. I mean, I don't want to accidentally work on the Sabbath. I don't want to mistakenly break the law, right? Are you serious? How do you accidentally work? If you are at all confused about what work is, just ask my son and some of his punk friends. They will tell you immediately if what you are doing is work and they will try and get out of it at the same expediency. They all have a severe allergy to work at that age. But because we want to justify ourselves and show people how awesome we are, rabbis developed the Mishnah or the Jewish rule book as it was and developed 39 categories of work with hundreds of subcategories to define what work is. So things like opening an umbrella, can't do it. It's work. Winding a clock, nope. Braiding your hair, not on the sabbath you won't. Applying makeup. Can't do it. Work. Not even foundation, not even foundation. A little eyeshadow just to clean up the front porch a little bit. Not on the sabbath you will not. Can't do it. So what about uh, walking through a grain field and getting a little something to eat because you're hungry? Nay, it's all work. Mark continues, verse 25, Jesus said to them, Haven't you ever read in the Scriptures what David David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went to the house of God during the days when Abathor was high priest and broke the law. God's law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests were allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions, which caused them to break the law of God. When Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Underline that whole verse. Verse 27, put a star by it, something, and then off to the side write, gift, Sabbath was made for you, not you for the Sabbath. Sabbath. It is a gift of God. So the Son of Man, Jesus, is Lord even over the Sabbath. The commands of God are a given by God. They are a gift out of His mercy and grace for you to say, look how amazing God is. That even in this, He's for us. Even when we take a day off, we will still reap a bountiful harvest. Some of you all, you're addicted to work. You're addicted to how it makes you feel you like that people notice how hard you work and how much money you make. And you're so arrogant to think that if you miss a day off, the whole thing is going to fall apart and that everything hinges on you. And God's not going to take care of you if you miss one day. And like the Pharisees who Jesus is condemning, you've turned a handout into a hardship. And even right now in your mind, you're trying to clarify what is work because I need to justify myself. And on some level, I define myself by my job, even though who you are was never meant to be what you do. And so we'll talk specifically about the Sabbath later, but let me just pastor you for a moment and say, don't ignore that voice of God trying to speak into your heart. I think you'll be surprised what Jesus says or doesn't say about the Sabbath. But for now, you should allow yourself to listen to that still small voice in your heart. And if God is talking to you, don't ignore it. Don't try and justify it yourself. But Mark or Peter, they both continue on Jesus' tirade into chapter 3. Because Jesus goes into the synagogue and notices a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Oh yeah, not only is harvesting your food work, but apparently healing a brother's hand, it's also work. I mean, people will get paid to practice uh, you know, medicine, so it must be a job, therefore it's work. We can't have that. Sorry, coronavirus, can't treat you on a Sunday, no doctors for you today. Jesus said to the man with a deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. Now that's not very Jesus-like, is it? Hey, bro, bring your deformity up here in front of everybody so we can all see it. Oh, maybe you were not taught that sometimes Jesus wants to use what you're most ashamed of in order to bring you not to show people how horrible you are, but to show people how amazing God is. Then he turned to his critics and asked, "Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath?" Love the sarcasm that Jesus brings to this. Have you not read? Of course they read. Do you, are these law permit good deeds, or is a day for doing evil? Uh, is this a day to save a life or destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. He looked around at them angrily. Circle star, underline, highlight. Angrily. Jesus was angry and deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, Hold out your hand. He's not even looking at him. Right? He looked at the Pharisees angrily. and man's over here. Hold out your hand. That's embarrassing, isn't it? the hand all gnarled up and the guy's just standing there in front of everybody, yet that's faith, isn't it? Show me what you're most embarrassed by and I'll show you a God who restores it because Jesus heals it and the man holds out his hand. At once, verse 6, at once, immediately, 42 times that word's going to be used in this little book of Mark. At once, the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Why? Because he healed somebody? No, because he threatened their loss. Make no mistake, by Jesus allowing his disciples to eat on the Sabbath, by Jesus healing a man's hand on the Sabbath, these most ardent law keepers were also put on display. These most committed Jews who had the Old Testament memorized, the Torah, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized. Uh, these men who had the 613 commands, Given by God to Moses to the people, memorized. The the ones who added these hundreds of other laws to these laws in the Mishnah, they had that memorized. These men of zeal, they could not have somebody threatening and making a mockery of their rules in public. Keeping the rules is what gave them power. Zeal is what made them superior. And they couldn't allow this homeless miracle worker from Galilee taking that all away. Somebody between services said, sounds a little bit like our government today. All these people wanting to create these laws. And you have this rogue individual come in trying to challenge it all. Which understand this, this is a cautionary tale for us. This Peter and Mark that they're writing, they're giving us a warning. They're signaling to us, those of us who follow Jesus, that we need to be mindful of our attitudes because if we're not careful, zeal can go bad. Like the Pharisees, our fervor for the Lord can prevent others from following Jesus. Peter and Mark, they're trying to remind us that religion can go rancid. Fortunately, they had the ability to communicate to us what it is that we need to do differently. And in order to recognize some of these things in our life, there's four things that Peter and Mark want you to do. And they need you to understand, to uh, recognize when religion is about to go rancid, you start adding extra rules to God's rules. When you start adding extra rules, jot that down, to God's rules, your religion is about to turn rancid. Think of God's rules like fences. Inside the fence is life. Outside the fence is death. Inside the fence is flourishing. It's blessing. Outside the fence is death. This is what God told Adam and Eve in the very beginning of time. He said, there's one rule. Don't eat from this tree. This is your boundary. Inside of it, you stay inside this. Life flourishing, blessing, bless the world, inhabit the world. Outside of it, you'll surely die. Peter, or excuse me, Paul writes a few thousands later in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. Outside God's boundary is death. God's laws, God's commands, God's rules are always meant to keep us from an eternal spiritual death, which here's the problem. When you start adding fences to God's fence and putting fences up in front of God's fence, you'll teach people that fences aren't really that big of a deal because it's human nature to want to hop the fence as Adam and Eve did, as you have done. And if nothing negative happens when you hop that fence, you'll decide to hop the next fence and the next fence and the next fence until you're completely outside of God's boundary and plan and pretty soon you've jumped God's fence and now what Jesus died for, you're calling normal. And so what well-intentioned Christians do to combat this is they say well I don't think this rule from God is strict enough and people won't take this seriously enough and so what I need to do is put some fences here in order to help God out and get people's attention now work becomes eating grain and healing hands but watch this Proverbs 30 verse 5 every word of God proves true every word of God proves true he is a shield to all who come to him for protection do not add to his words. That's verse 6. Do not add to his words, or he may rebuke you and expose you as a liar. And I've met some well-intentioned Christian liars. So have you. Because they tell you these rules that aren't actually God's rules, like the rules the Pharisees made up. And they'll tell you you can't drink, but God's never said that. He said, don't get drunk. And they say, well, you can't wear a hat in church. Uh, But what about that head covering thing that is in the New Testament? Oh, there's a difference between tradition and doctrine. And and see, my all-time favorite one is people will say, well, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And suddenly that means you can't ever eat ice cream or have a tattoo or get your ears pierced or anything else that you want to do because your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is living inside of you. But maybe you should actually put that passage in context and see what it's actually talking about. I assure you it's not what you think it is. And so listen to me now. The problem isn't the extra rules that you put on your own life to help you with discipline and submission. The problem is the extra rules that you put on other people's lives for their good. Uh, Because God doesn't need your help giving rules to anybody else. He made his rules perfectly clear right here in this book. And so if there's anything that uh, you need to do to help yourself out, is there anything wrong with that? No, absolutely not. Because of your personality, because of your past experiences or background, absolutely put up some fences in your own life. But that which is personal is personal. Don't try and put on somebody else the rules that you put into your life. So, can you add rules to your own life? Absolutely. Should you add rules to somebody else's life? Wouldn't recommend it. Which leads me to number two. How does religion turn rancid? We start using the Bible as binoculars instead of a mirror. We use the Bible as binoculars to look at everybody else's life and what they're doing or they're not doing instead of the Bible as a mirror to reflect to us what God is asking us to do. And if you find yourself like the Pharisees saying to Jesus, look at what they're doing, Jesus. Snitches get stitches. That's what I tell my kids. That's what Jesus should have told them. That's not what he said, so I probably shouldn't have said that. But if you find yourself trying to tattletale, you need to start examining your own heart. Because more often than not, what's your goal in that? To deflect off of you and to show how everybody else is what they're not doing and how far they've fallen and who hasn't kept up the effort. And we're using the Bible as binoculars instead of a mirror. And Jesus reminds us in the book of Matthew that that's called log eye disease, that you get a log in your eye and you are worried about the splinters in your brother's eye. Get the log out of your eye first. This is why you have to be careful about coming to church and hearing a message and immediately thinking to yourself, so-and-so should have heard that message. I wish they were here for that one. I'm going to send them the link for that one. When what is God trying to teach you? Furthermore, what you have to be really careful about when you're in a position of authority or a leadership is talking about your past. Because most people won't use your past as a teaching tool. They'll use it as permission and they'll say, well, so-and-so did this and it worked out fine for them. I'm going to go ahead and explore this boundary and see how it plays out for me. And this is what uh, worries me when people come up to me and talk to me as their pastor and say, well, did you ever do this? And have you ever tried this? And I say, well, it doesn't matter what I've done. It matters. What did Jesus say? Don't use me as your measuring stick. Use Jesus as your measuring stick. I assure you, I will let you down. But at the end of the day, Mark and Peter are trying to remind us that adding rules, that ends bad, unless it's for your own life. And looking at people through binoculars of the Bible, that ends bad. We need to use it as a mirror to look into our own lives. Third, how can you really turn people off of Jesus because your zeal is bad? Major on the minors. Major on the minors. What were the Pharisees really concerned with? All the rules of the Old Testament. What were they supposed to be concerned with? The person the rules pointed to. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. Y'all are looking for me. That's what Jesus was trying to say. And instead of the Pharisees trying to figure out if Jesus was in fact who he said he was, they were worried about how righteous they were and how unrighteous everybody else was. So I don't feel like I need to spend a lot of time here because Jesus pretty well articulates this when he berates the Pharisees with, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? You jerks. But this was Jesus' way of reminding everyone who was listening what's really important. Is doing good a major yes? Yes. Is trying to define what work is a minor yes? Major, doing good. Minor, trying to define work. For you, not everything that God speaks on is a major issue. To put that in perspective, let's revisit this idea of Sabbath. Did you know that Jesus confirms in the New Testament nine of the ten commandments? Says they're still lawful and applicable for you today. Do you know the one of the ten that he didn't talk about? Sabbath. Not a trick question. Jesus never confirms the Sabbath being applicable to your life today. Does that mean you shouldn't take a day off? Don't know. What did God tell you? I would argue that one day off is absolutely good for your soul but it's not a major doctrine because Jesus fulfilled it when he lived the life that we couldn't live and he didn't tell us that we needed it going forward. Last thing, real quick, number four, we start to love rules and ideas more than people. You want to know if your faith is real? Do you love rules and ideas more than people? How do you feel about the people of God? Pharisees clearly did not care about people. Cared about themselves. That's why Jesus looked at them angrily. And I wonder is Jesus angry with you? Not because of the sin in your life. No, no, no. He died for that. He showed how much he loved you because of the sin in your life. Is Jesus angry with you because of how you treat people? Because you don't care for them? Because you only care about rules and ideas? Do you think God really cares that you know what superlapsarianism means? Or do you think he cares about knowing your neighbor's name? I would argue the latter. So let me close this like this. Religion gone rancid. It's like dinner at Golden Corral. No one intends to go there. You just end up there. Some of you all have been to Go and Corral. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Religion gone rancid is like that. No one intends to go there. The Pharisees didn't set out to end up this way. But it's exactly what happened. Nobody intends to become a Pharisee. It's a trap we just fall into because we're human. And we want to try and justify ourselves. It's why we need a relationship with Jesus, not a religion to follow. Because he justifies you in the eyes of God not by anything that you've done, but because of everything that he has done. And so if all you're doing is living for checking off boxes and looking down at your list, you'll never have your eyes up to see the people God has placed into your life. And God is not asking you for your help on checking off boxes and instituting rules. He did that for us. He doesn't need your help with the rules. He wrote that on people's hearts. You know what he does want your help with? Leading people to him. Showing people how amazing his love is. Showing people that the rules were intended not to keep anything from them, but to give them life. And if you're just angry all the time, and if you're just condemning people all the time, and if your life is not marked with joy, who's ever going to follow you, and how are you going to ever lead them to Jesus? Because I've known some of those people, and I didn't want anything to do with the religion that they were trying to teach me. But until you find joy and happiness, and like, oh no, this makes total sense... It's a gift, not a burden. Those are the people that, that's what they're looking for, the people in this world. Let's pray. God, thank you for life and joy and fulfillment and rules and commands. And God, it's easy to fall into this trap of just living for the rules and the commands and not recognizing the people that you've put out there for us to help lead to you. Not because of anything that we can do, God, but because of what everything your son Jesus did. Jesus, I want this to be a church that you don't look at angrily because of how we treated people. But rather, you lead people to fullness of life that's only found in your word and God, we know that there are absolutely 100% major rules that we are supposed to be following. And for those of us in here that are falling short on that, God, we ask for your forgiveness. And we ask for your help. And we ask you to do what only you can do and send your Holy Spirit in a powerful way to lead us in the direction that you want to take us. And stop letting us live our own lives the way we want to. And submit to your rule and your authority. And God, I'm praying for divine blessing on everybody here and everybody watching online that you will do something powerful in their lives to assure them that you are real and that you are providing them life to the full. God, we love you. We praise you. We're most thankful for air conditioning, and we ask that it gets fixed in five minutes or less. In Jesus' name, amen.